it's very important to Rails that David added tests as part of the initial, when you create a Rails application, you get a test directory. Like if he hadn't done that, it would have not fostered a culture of testing. Episode 75, March 2015. In this episode, Chad Patel, founder and CEO of ThoughtBot, talks about factories in TDD, design patterns and anti-patterns, explains the law of Demeter and voyeuristic models, as well as names a few strategies of how to deal with fat models and controllers. This episode is sponsored by the Dreadling Design Company and Field Notes. What is your preferred tool set for testing these days? So we use, I use RSpec, Capybara, and that's pretty much it. What are factories in TDD? So factories are an alternative to fixtures. Uh, fixtures are what's built into Rails and they're loaded into your database at the start of your test runs. And you can use that data to, you know, in your tests. Factories are an alternative to that where instead of setting up a setup, instead of um, having a bunch of data that's loaded always at the beginning of your test runs, factories are methods used that you call to create new objects when you need them. The problem that factories primarily solve in Rails TDD is that you don't have this rat's nest of setup where you have all these interconnected objects that are sometimes used in your specs and sometimes not used in another spec. With factories, for every spec, you're just creating the data that you need. You say, I want a user, it has this name, and it's just in that spec and it's isolated to that spec. So you're just dealing with what you need. And you can also change or combine them dynamically on the fly, right? Right, so if you have a spec where you have an ordering system and, and you really need an order that's in a particular state with a particular user that might be like overdue, it's invoices overdue, like you don't need to set up a bunch of fixtures that replicate that setup, but rather you can just call some methods to create an order with the right due date, with an invoice that's overpaid, that kind of thing, and you do that right in your spec. Why do you think the emphasis on testing is so widespread in the Ruby community? I think it comes down to it just being there from the beginning. You know, you see analogous communities to Ruby, like Python or PHP, or you know, these other web framework, you know, scripting languages, web languages, that kind of thing. You know, if the founder, the creator of that language, if the com early community around it didn't say, we're going to do testing, this is what we do, that kind of thing. It just doesn't happen. It's very important to Rails that David added tests as part of the initial, when you create a Rails application, you get a test directory. Like if he hadn't done that, it would have not fostered a culture of testing. So I think that that is the most important thing. And then secondarily, because Ruby is dynamic, it's a dynamic language with dynamic types, It's not a fixed type system, those kinds of things. You actually, in order to build robust software, you need tests. And so that's sort of like from the bottom up in terms of community and early community, and then over the top of like, oh, in order to write good software, we probably need to have this as a best practice kind of thing, both coming together to really enforce it. What are design patterns? Design patterns are recipes essentially of things that have worked in the past for other people that come from experience of how to solve problems in software. So someone may have worked on a system before that 
behaved in a certain way and a pattern emerged for how to solve that problem. And someone writes that down and uh, says, here's something we did before and here's how it worked. And those patterns ultimately then, you know, get names and get abstracted into more and more generic tools that are sort of in a tools chest that you can recognize heuristically pattern matching basically of when to apply certain patterns to certain situations. What are anti-patterns? Yeah, I think anti-patterns are the, well, they're the opposite of patterns, which is instead of approaching it from the aspect of here's something we did that worked and extracting that out and making a generic, anti-patterns are the opposite of that. Here's something we see that is commonly bad. That's an anti-pattern. Usually when you write about anti-patterns, and we did this in our anti-patterns book as well, you usually then try to provide solutions to that anti-pattern. Okay, everybody, my name is Aaron James Draplin. Just got done telling you about my whole life. Uh, the good, the bad, the gross, the ugly, the weird, the sinister, the awesome. And now you need to go to draplin.com and buy some killer merch. Draplin.com backslash merch and things that you need, right? Okay, you need to go there and look at this stuff. And then when you're done with that, you need to go to fieldnotesbrand.com and get some memo books. We'll ship them anywhere. If you're listening to this in Vienna, Austria, or Vienna, Illinois, hell, wherever that is, we will we'll ship them there too, okay? Fieldnotesbrand.com. You need these things. $9.95 for a three-pack. Would you pay for coffee today, right? Right, right? You need this stuff. So draplin.com, fieldnotesbrand.com, and uh, yeah. Those are, the, those are the only two links you need in your life. There you go. Can you name a few of the most common anti-patterns in Rails? Particularly early on with Rails, one of the most common anti-patterns is one we coined PHP-itis. And basically what that meant was Rails is a very structured it calls itself an MVC framework, but but there's models, views, and controllers. Everything has its place. And there is a separation, most importantly, in terms of this anti-pattern between the view, which is your HTML page that's being rendered in, in stock rails, that's an ERB template, and the models and controllers, which is where your business logic should live. So in a lot of other frameworks, PHP particularly, but also Java, JS, Java servlet pages, Java servlets, that kind of stuff. It was very common to, there is not that structure. And so you would mix in with the ERB, the Ruby code, or you'd mix in with the JSP, the Java code, or you'd mix in, mix in the PHP with the HTML. So it's very, very common for people coming from other less structured things to have views in uh, the Rails application that have lots and lots of Ruby and logic and variables and all this stuff mixed in with the HTML. That's one of the most common, common uh, anti-patterns. The other is people who have really bloated controllers. So if you sort of get past PHP-itis and realize that, well, we have controllers, we should be doing a lot of stuff in controllers instead of in the views, that's really a common thing is to put tons and tons of stuff into controllers. And what are good strategies to avoid fat controllers? 
So the first sort of rudimentary strategy is to take the stuff in the controllers and move it into the models instead. But if you do that, uh, so that that's the first pass. Uh, you do that, it's going to be your controllers are going to be a lot cleaner. And generally speaking, your models will also be more structured. It's easier to unit test those, so they'll probably be better tested. But when you do that, you end up with fat models too. And so it's really important that you know, you then break apart your models to be small, discrete objects that have single responsibilities. And a couple of strategies to deal with fat models, like breaking them out into classes and modules, I guess. Yeah. So there's a there's a couple different ways. So breaking them out into classes, breaking them out into modules. So if you have shared behavior, you can move that shared behavior into a module. Even if you don't have shared behavior, you just have a responsibility you can move that out into a module. And now Rails has what they call what we call a concern. And that's essentially a module uh, where you've moved like behavior into a concern and you can mix that in to your model. Generally at ThoughtBot and I in particular, you know, as a group, we sort of avoid modules though because modules are sort of a halfway between the code actually being in your model and using object-oriented principles to create new objects. And so we much prefer creating new objects, new classes that contain that behavior and interface with the other objects in your systems in a discrete, you know, well-structured way. And then compose those objects together to perform the logic of your system. So you, you know, and, and there's patterns for that as well, uh, decorators and presenters to pull those objects together or transform them in some way to do your, do your work. So when you are doing this well, you have small discrete objects on the model side with very single responsibilities. Each class is responsible for one thing and doing it well, and it's well tested. And then you have objects which pull those together into a larger concept. And, you know, this isn't, I'm talking about it very abstract, but you may be already doing this. Like if you have an order object and that order object has order line items and, you know, a user, that is essentially something that is a presenter. It's pulling all of the discrete things that make up an order together into the concept of an order. And that's essentially what a presenter is. People don't think traditionally about orders that way. I'm using an example to try to make it relate. A typical presenter might be, you know, something that is being pulling together a bunch of different objects to make one single page of your application cohesive. So it might be like the timeline. You might have a timeline presenter which pulls together a user and their activity, does some things with it so that the timeline view of your social application can can be presented. I love the next uh, the next one, uh, voyeuristic models. I love the term. Yeah. What are they? Yeah, it's this it's this thing in the anti-patterns book. So there's an original anti-patterns book. It, it came from, oh, I apologize, I, I, I don't remember the author's name, but that was the first anti-patterns book. And in that book, they came up with clever names for all of the patterns. And so we did the same thing. Voyeuristic models mean models that know too much about each other. They're reaching inside of each other. They're, they're watching each other. They're pulling information from each other. And it's basically a violation of the single responsibility principle that every model should have one responsibility and not know too much about each other 
And if you have service objects or, or presenters or decorators that pull from those models, that's a much better way of pulling the pieces together. But the individual models shouldn't know too much about each other. What is the law of D? <laughs> Are you avoiding pronouncing it? <laughs> um, kind of. <laughs> yeah, the law of Demeter is, um, or Demeter, is um, it boils down to the same thing as voyeuristic models, but not just for models. For any two objects in a system, you should not have objects that are reaching into each other and using information that the other thing knows about. And the law of Demeter basically says it's okay to go one level down. It's okay to ask the order for the address. But if that address is, a, is an object, the system should not be asking the order for the first line of the address. It shouldn't be saying order.address.line or .country or whatever. You want to avoid that. And the law specifically says, you know, this, this in most languages, lots of languages have dot notation to go across properties. So it, in its most simplistic form, it's saying you shouldn't have more than a chain of two dots. Uh, to go to reach inside another object and get a property of an object that it is related to through that new object. So in this case, in that example I gave where you have an address object and you ask the order for its address object and then you get the country from it, you would, um, there's lots of different ways of solving that. The most, the most simplistic would be for the order to have a method on it that is, you know, ad, uh, country. So instead of asking going through the order to its address to get the country, the object that's interfacing with order only knows, no, I'm just gonna ask the order for its country. I'm not gonna be concerned with the implementation or the related object or where that information is actually coming from. So the reason why we avoid that is so that you can change it. So if each object has its own responsibility and you're not reaching across and into other objects and mixing everything up, it becomes easier to change so it ultimately doesn't matter if the implementation of an address changes on an order so that the country is stored in a different place. All of the code that was using the country doesn't need to change. I agree with Joe Ferris that this is probably the only law like that is probably always true in a way, right? Right. But sometimes it, it seems like it is also cosmetic. For example, using like delegate, for example, um, seems like you are just hiding the implementation someplace else. I think it's it's partially true. It's a common conception. I'm not going to say misconception. I think that the the reality is is you're thinking too much about the actual implementation. That that can be delegate macro or, or helper. It could be actual methods. It could be a whole nother call to an external system. But by enforcing the law up front, you're maintaining the flexibility to do that. Whereas if you get hung up on, well, this is just a simple thing. I'm just getting the country from the address. I can totally just do that. Then you're setting yourself up to be, to have that inflexible, to when that eventually does change or when you want to change it, you need to go change it in every other place of the system. Whereas, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't ultimately matter whether you're using a delegate helper to implement that. That's the most simplistic way to do it. And that may change to something else in the future. You're getting the benefit of doing it up front. So um, everything is a balance usually in software development, but 
I think Joe is right, and I, I agree with him that this is one of the few things where you can really just follow it <laughs> all of the time, and it doesn't hurt you. We tend to be very cautious about sort of dogmatic, do this all the time. I think it le does lead to premature optimizations, pre doing things prematurely before you need them. And we need to be very careful of doing that. I think I agree with Joe, the, the law of Demeter is one of the few things where you can pretty much just do it all the time and it will it's not going to hurt you. Thank you.